0: Y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all
1: listening to in the corner back by the wood pile. I'm Spugn Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Our guest back by the woodpile today is Chinese-American author Lisa C, whose books such as Shanghai Girls, Snowflower and the Secret Fan, On Gold Mountain, and many others have won over the hearts of many readers and critics alike. And she's got a new title out called The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane, which tells the story of a Chinese ethnic minority woman named Lian whose suffering and joy is intertwined with Chinese tea, specifically the variety that is exclusively grown by her people, the Akka. But the book is also about Leon's lost daughter, Haley, whom she gave up as an infant and has ended up adopted by a couple in America. That's as much as I'm gonna say now, but there are plenty of other themes in The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane for Mrs. C and I to talk up without spoiling the story. So I guess the first obvious question is, what made you decide to write this book, and especially bringing in the whole world and history of Chinese tea?
0: There were a couple of coincidences or moments of fate, I think, that led me to this story. And of course, the novel begins with an Aka, ethnic minority, saying with says, no coincidence, no story. And you know, that certainly plays out in the novel, but it also played out in how I came to, the, to write the book. So the first of these was that I was just going to the movies with my husband, and um, up ahead of us there was an older white couple walking with their adopted teenage Chinese daughter between them. And she had her hair up in a ponytail, and it was swishing back and forth. And I had this vision of her as being kind of like a fox spirit in that family. And as you know, you know, fox spirits in Chinese culture can be kind of naughty. They can be kind of mischievous. But they also have this ability to bring great love and also, in their highest form, create families. And so when I saw her with this, you know, foxtail swishing back and forth, I thought, well, yes, she is like a fox spirit in her family in the sense that she had brought great love and through her presence had created a family and so i had been thinking about writing about transnational adoption and the one-child policy i you know i'm going to say something like 20 years but i never sort of knew how i would do it and uh, you know i've been writing these historical novels so that also didn't sound too terribly historical but just in that moment, I thought, well, it's all going to work out. This is what I'm going to write. And, and I just started doing research, and I didn't worry too much about the historic backdrop. I just thought, that will come. you know? right. And I was plenty, plenty busy just doing my other research. And then a couple of months later, I was giving a talk at a library near San Diego. And it was a really big event. And they had invited a tea expert to come in and do a kind of Chinese tea. And I got to sit up on the stage with him, and he was pouring these teas. and They were all pu'er, and he was talking about tea in general, and then pu'er very specifically. And so, you know, one of the things he said was, "Tea is the second most popular drink in the world after water." And I thought, "Wow, you know, that's kind of interesting." And he talked about tea trees and the tea horse road and um, this whole history of pu'er. And the whole idea that it grows in value with age, and, you know, that you can think of it in a lot of ways, like wine. Then he said something where it was just this uh, another sort of ah moment, which was just that year. So now three years ago, there was one cake of Poular a little under a pound, that had just sold at international auction for 150,000 U.S. dollars. Wow! And when I heard that. I thought, well, now I know what my historic backdrop is going to be, because there was so much I could draw from. You know, there were tea trees, there was this incredible value, the history of the Tea Horse Road. You know, some of it I used more than others, but that was the moment that those two things really came together.
1: Let's talk about the tea. Specifically, you talk about Pu'art, which that is the most sought after, I guess, of the teas. Was that something you had drank before and were into, or was it something you had to
0: well, so here's a funny thing. It was a long time before someone pointed out to me that Korean in Cantonese is pronounced pone, sometimes more like a bee sounding bone. Of course, my family drank that all the time when I was a kid, when we would go out for some mm-hmm. So I've been drinking it my whole life. I just hadn't realized it. Right. And of course, I, when we were going out to eat, I can tell you that we were not drinking Teas that cost a, you know a thousand dollars a cup or anything like
1: that. As far as you know, but if the right person.
0: I'm sure that where we were going, they were not serving that.
1: But, I mean, that's one thing that I remember thinking while reading your book: value is all about who is willing to pay for it and you know the scarcity or the availability of it.
0: that true about everything. Like you could say cars
1: or, oh, yeah.
0: or art. Of it that that um, were silver. I mean, that, that they're were jewelry. That things that are collectible tend to have that scarce scarcity element to them. It's like, oh, I need to find that one baseball card to fill out my team right. or whatever. Right. You know, so that, that and that's what keeps you going back to the store to buy little packets of baseball cards, right? Magic cards or Dungeons and Dragons, whatever. You're right that part of it is scarcity, but If you think about something, and again, very similar, like wine, that while it's aging, the taste is changing. And so a raw pu'er that's just been picked and just been processed and it's three days old, that's going to taste very different than something that's 10 years or 20 or 30, 40, 50 years old that's been aging naturally, just like wine will age naturally. The value is not just that it's scarce, but that what happens to it and the taste that it develops and how we, as humans, you know, how we take in taste and process taste.
1: So when you were doing all this research, did you allow yourself a budget as far as like, okay, I'm going to splurge and taste what one of these 50-year-old teas tastes like? You know, see if there's a big difference or to, to just have that experience?
0: So don't hate me, but I never had to pay for any tea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here's another coincidence. My husband ran into someone, and this guy said, you know, so what's Lisa working on these days?" And my husband was like, "I don't know, it's, you know, something to do with tea." And uh, the, the guy said, "Well, you know, is it pu'er?" And my husband, "I don't know, you know, something to do with tea." And it turned out that this man had just the week before sat next to a woman at a big Chinese banquet in Los Angeles, and um, that woman is the largest importer of puer into the United States. And so I went and met her, but I we met at a whole other woman's house, and she also is uh, a tea collector, but also has her own, it's a very small uh, tea company that's all online. and. I ended up traveling with Linda to China, to the tea mountains. So one of the things was that they wanted me to taste these really special teas, and they own them. They have them. And Elaine in particular, uh, the the big importer, she has teas that are some of them iconic. Uh, She actually has some. I wrote about it in the book, the truly simple elegant. Mm -hmm. You know, this first batch of tea that was made once China reopened, and there were these people who came into the tea mountains trying to find this tea, and he created the, you know, the first truly, going back to the true artisanal way to create pu'er, and so she had some of that. And then when I was in China, we were, you know, with different tea masters and different growers... And, of course, they all have their own collections. And so one of the women there that we met with is a very big grower. And and she grows, you know, really a lot. I mean, she sells just lots and lots of tea. I can't remember off the top of my head how many, you know, tons a year. But she also makes some very high, high high-quality tea. So, for example, it might be a tea that is picked only from, you know, the leaves are from a single thousand-year-old tree. Wow. For 10 days. And then that's that's the entirety of that batch. And so she actually sells to, you know, people who need to give really great gifts in Mm -hmm. the government. One of the teas that she brewed for us when we were with her was a tea that she said that, in the um, like a tea house, particular tea place in Beijing, that that tea is a thousand dollars a cup, wow. at just the liquid. So I didn't have to pay for that, <laughs> thank God. And I don't think I would have. I mean, you're right; I could have set aside a budget, but what could I really do that? I don't think so. I have Tasted some that are quite old, and it, it's unique. You know, it's a really unique experience.
1: Well, that that was my next question, like. Can you taste $1,000 worth of flavor?
0: What I would say is, again, I'm going to go back to that wine analogy. If you've ever bought two buck chuck from Trader Joe's, well, okay, so you know what that tastes like, and you can probably tell the difference between that and a $20 bottle. And you can probably tell the difference between a $20 and a $100 bottle, but for me, Could I honestly say I could tell the difference between a $100 and a $500 bottle or a $100 and a $1,000 bottle, let alone bottles that are even worth more than that? Yes, I could tell that there's a difference, but my palate isn't sophisticated enough to really tell the difference. I mean, I can say that, wow, I've never tasted anything like that. Those really fine, fine, high-quality teas you know, they have this characteristic, it's called wake gan which means it's like returning flavor. And so after you've swallowed the tea, there's this kind of returning flavor up through your throat and into your mouth that brings back this, this kind of taste and it's a pretty unique thing. It sounds disgusting as I'm saying it to, <laughs> to you right now, but it's actually it's a quite unique and it feels like it opens up your chest in this very kind of dramatic way, and sometimes when people are drinking, again these you know super high tea quality teas, they flush, you know, and their chests get kind of red. It's like all this, what would that be like? Air and blood just start kind of inspired or excited mm-hmm. by it all.
1: In the book, you mentioned this one pu'ar, the one that everybody was going after, that had the yellow strings in it. Yeah. Is that a real thing?
0: So I was at the Tea Expo, the International Tea Expo, a couple of years ago. And, you know, tea people, they just want to drink tea all the time. So, you know, here you are at a Tea Expo, and they're doing these seminars. And even in the seminar, you taste, you know, eight to ten teas. Anyway, one of the ones that I went to uh, was actually sponsored by a particular tea company from China. And one of their teas, they were talking about it as yellow hair tea. Mm -hmm. And what had happened was that in one of their warehouses uh, where they do the artificial fermentation, so some teas are naturally fermented, some are naturally aged, some are artificially aged and fermented. And so in this one warehouse where they were doing the fermentation, the aging, something got in there, some kind of bacteria, and it did go through the tea leaves like yellow hair. And they found that it had really incredible medicinal qualities, even more so than regular tea or even more so than a really, you know, than pu'er. They said that this particular tea had been approved by China's version of the FDA as a cancer drug. Well, China's version of the FDA, you know, they don't have the same standards that we have. But that tea actually is being tested here in the United States in three different universities. They're doing um, experiments with it. They haven't been able to reproduce it outside of that one warehouse. It's like whatever got in there just started doing its thing, but only seems to want to live in that one warehouse. You know, I took that idea and just sort of played with it of what, what could happen if there really was something provably beneficial. And of course, we know even from green tea, you know, all the health benefits from green tea. But when I first started writing the book, so that's got to be about three years ago, I came across a compilation of studies about puer. There were about 200 going on right at that time. And now, three years later, there are over 1,000 studies going on around the world looking at this 1T, and they're looking at all kinds of things. They know pretty much for a fact that it lowers your cholesterol, but it has an effect on statins. It seems to be some benefits for diabetes. They're testing it with different types of cancer. So They're doing all kinds of tests. You know, a lot of them, what's the phrase they have at the conclusion? It's like inconclusive at best. And maybe it's a tiny, tiny, you know, maybe it's a 0.01 good outcome, which is not a very high outcome.
1: Right. You mentioned also in the book about the, this great tea crash that happened, I guess, when there was a big bombshell that a lot of forgeries were being sold at high dollar prices. Did that really occur?
0: Yes, it did. It was this bubble because... The success of this tea, or you know, in, in recent times, has really paralleled what's happened with the economy in China. And so, by the time two thousand seven rolled around, you know, there were people who had a fair amount of money, disposable income, and we're looking here. We're going back to this phrase again: collectibles, things that where they could invest their money that wasn't in a bank, and whatever it was, was going to go up in value. And so um, people started buying large amounts of Pu'er and saving it. And once that demand really went up, then, of course, there were these forgeries. And um, I think it was right around the Lunar New Year that there was a report on Chinese television about how many fakes there were in the big tea market in Guangzhou. And it was an immediate crash, huge Mm -hmm. crash. But I can tell you that the market has, you know, after all these years now, has bounced back. But I think it's, you know, there's so many more precautions in place now. And as I wrote in the Tea gro of Hummingbird Lane, that, you know, there are villages where they have put up gates to make sure that no one is coming in with, you know, fake Mm wrappers to wrap or bringing in bad tea and wrapping it in good wrappers. I mean, there are all kinds of ways that you can do a, make a forgery. And so it seems to me that most of the ways that that has been stopped is really from the people who grow the tea, really from the source. But it can happen anywhere along the line. But they have things now like a, a special ticket that gets wrapped so that you know where it's from and how it gets wrapped in the cake. You can't um, undo a cake and slip in something new very easily. You have, you know, it's, it's much more protective.
1: The Akai people. How did you discover them, and why did you choose them to be the center of the story?
0: Yunnan, which is where these tea mountains are, it, it's an interesting province. You know, it's considered a global biodiversity hotspot, and that means a couple things. First, they have more species of plant life in that one province of China than in all together in the rest of the northern They have more species of animals in that one province of China than in all the rest of China. And then that biodiversity also applies to human beings. So China has 55 ethnic minorities in addition to the Han majority. Of those 55, 26 of them live in Yunnan. And so even before I went on my research trip, I knew that, of course, and I had done not deep research, but enough research on all 26 to know that I could eliminate about 20 of them didn't live in the right place or they just didn't appeal to me in some way. So I had in my mind about five different groups, but I went just with an open mind and thinking, you know, you never know what you're going to find. You know, I was definitely keeping my eye out for the die people. They're very interesting people. And they're, it's a big group, too. Also, they have their own written language, which seemed really important to me at the time. So they have cities where all the signage is in Dai hmm. instead of in standard Chinese. So that was one group that I think was way up at the top of my list. Anyway, we are traveling around. And there came a day that we spent with an Akka family, and this was planned to go visit them. They are very well known for the teas that they grow. And it's just like many of these other visits that we've been doing where we stopped and started drinking tea all day, and, and they would bring out you know, special teas that they had made and or saved. And the daughter, Abu she really reminded me of myself in the sense that she loved to ask questions and she loved to collect stories. So she started telling these stories about her mother and her grandmother. Uh, She collected stories from her elders in her village and on her side of the mountain. But also her own personal story was so interesting. I actually used a lot of it for the Um, And I can tell you about that in a second. Anyway, by the time lunchtime came around, I thought, well, for sure I'm writing about the Aqa. It was just like, no question. And so, you know, we spent a few more days with her and her family. And then when I got home, that's when I started doing, you know, traditional kinds of research where you're looking up people's dissertations and things like that.
1: Okay, so when you approached the Aqa, I felt like you... Portrayed it very objectively, where in our modern culture, or maybe maybe a generation or two before, there seemed to be one or another approach: either an indigenous culture was all wrong, or the indigenous culture is you know pure as the driven snow. But you know, you presented all of their uh, practices and all that, even some that we might find like detrimental or repulsive, without being too judgy. Were you tempted? to go one way or the other.
0: No. Because, you know, I think with my writing, what I've been trying to do is just be in the room. You know, just like be in the room with people. Or, you know, these fictional characters in their world, in that world. And I can give you a really good example of this, not with this book, but with the one where it really was the turning point for me, which was with Snowflower and the Secret Fan. And one of the earliest readers, so this was long before the book was published, was a young woman who called me and said, well, how come you're not saying that foot binding is bad? You know, foot, this was so terrible, and and you have to say that it was really bad. That's not my job, to say that foot binding is bad. Like I said, I just wanted to be in the room with the two girls as they're having their feet bound, and Lily in particular. And so... I think if you're just in the room, that readers can decide for themselves: is this a good thing or a bad thing? I don't mean to say it's a bad. thing. <laughs> I think when you when you hear it, read the description of what it is, you're going to figure it out. So I think what you said earlier about the archives—true, they you know they have some traditions that are really beautiful, and some of that animistic stuff is really. Right, and I think we could all live with a little bit more of that. For example, the thought that they have that every living thing has a soul. That means, you know, also trees and a single grain of rice. And so if you really thought of the world that way, you know, maybe our world would be a little different. So that's on the good side. But they also have some traditions that really stem from their deepest beliefs and some of them with their origin myth um, or their belief of how the world started. One of them has to do with Amamata, who was the great mother. And so she had two breasts in front and nine on the back.
1: And the two in
0: front were for her human children and the ones on the back were for her animal children. And, you know, if you take a step back from that and just think about how that idea... Uh, might play out in society and culture all the way to today. And so something the other day asked me, actually a journalist, if I saw this book as being anti-religion. And I wasn't thinking of it as being anti-religion. This is their tradition and their beliefs, but I guess you could say that their beliefs are, in a sense, their religion. I think that you know, there are many of those all around the world, and and people uh, believe very strongly in their belief systems and and how the world was created and how people should live, and and that sometimes plays out in good, but also very negative ways. And I would say that actually about just about any kind of belief system. Pretty hard to find a belief system that's you know so so pure and doesn't have any negativity or any like you know anything negative in it.
1: There's a scene in your book where there's a therapist who's talking to a variety of ages of Chinese girls that have been adopted by uh, American parents. Now, is that something else that you got to sit in on?
0: That's not how I gathered that information, and I don't even know if there is such a thing as a therapy group like that. But what I did was talk to young women around the country, and a lot of it was through email, actually, about their experiences. And, of course, i have done a fair amount of research already, so I really tailored these questions very specifically uh, to them, but also a very specific age, kind of 18 to 22 years old. So we get into territory here where, I, I just want to say, I'm not speaking 100% across the board because of course every person has a different experience, but many of these young women have had issues about identity and also issues of other things. So. You know, for many of them, they've grown up in families where they are the only Chinese face. Sometimes in communities, or in their church, or school, or synagogue, where they're the only Chinese face, and they've asked themselves, "Well, what am I? You know, am I Chinese? Am I American? Am I Chinese American? Or am I something else?" And so that's one piece, but but this is also extended in sort of a bigger way of where they have, you know, feelings of abandonment and different kinds of feelings of conflict to the point that they have been given their own special label, the grateful but angry adoptee. You know, as I talked to these women, and again, I wasn't face-to-face all the time, but I had a list of 12 questions that I sent out, and if someone would agree to, to answer them. And what I got back were letters 30 to 50 pages long and they they just had completely opened their hearts and really shared their lives and experiences with me. And so there came a point where I really had in my own mind come to a place where I thought, this is less about being grateful but angry than it is grateful but sad. And this really came home for me when there was one young woman who said to me, "I know I'm the most precious person in my family. I know it, but I wasn't precious enough for my birth family to keep me as their one child." That is both—it's both a burden, but also kind of a hole, you know, that they're carrying. And uh, I find these young women to be so extraordinary and have so much insight. And they really have thought a lot about their lives and about who they are and where they fit in. But they do carry this you know, very sad sense of, of loss, not only of their birth parents, but in some cases, you know, some of them feel very disconnected from what should, could be their, their home culture.
1: Was there some that you met or talked with, I should say, that they didn't have any identity crisis, or if they had, they had somehow well, resolved? There are
0: plenty who don't. <laughs> yeah, oh. no, there are plenty who don't. I, but I was—that's not what I was looking for. No. I was looking for this particular court of, you know, coterie. But even in that therapy session, there's a little exchange where the girls are saying, you know, we know it's just, you know, it's just us. I know a bunch of girls who don't feel the same way. And so, again, everybody has a different experience. I'm just saying that there are enough who have had this kind of shared of troubles given their own
1: label. So you went on a book tour recently. yeah. And how'd that go? Any interesting stories or uh, encounters?
0: It went really well. It was really fantastic. I was all over the country. I also went up to Canada and people were really, they're very interested, I think. And I do think that there's something right now um, in our country, a, a sense of, not for everyone, but to have Maybe more of a sense of understanding about other cultures and other peoples, and so that was great. I I'll tell you though, the, just before my very first event on the road, I was in New York. I was sitting in the green room waiting to go on, and about ten minutes before I gave my first talk for this book, I got an email from one of the young women who I had interviewed. It started out, you know, we haven't. Been in contact in a while. I just wanted to catch you up on what's been happening in my life.
1: So she didn't know the book was out?
0: Uh, I don't think she knew the book was out. She just, you know, just wanted to touch base and let me know some things that had been happening with her. So she had been going to college, and she decided she would take some time off. She decided to go to China. When she had been found, there was a little piece of paper in her clothing. And when she was in China, she met a reporter who did a little story about her. And she, her birth parents came forward, her, her whole birth family, actually. It was her parents, two sisters, a brother, and a niece and a nephew. And so she was reunited with them. But really in a, in a way that, uh, as my editor said right then, because I was reading it to her, um, she says, "Well, it's a good thing you got this email now because it's, you know how this would might relate to the actual story in the book." So that was just incredible, and I I asked her, and you know, as we were writing back and forth over the next week or so, how her mother felt here that she had found her birth parents. And she says, "Well, you know, it's really not for me to say, but my mom, you know, she should speak for herself. But my mom wrote an article for the Boston Globe." about what it was like for her. And so actually when I was in Boston, they both came and I asked them, I took some time out of my talk and let them speak for about ten minutes so that they could talk about, you know, this whole experience of what that meant for her to find her birth parents, but also for the adoptive mother for her daughter to find her birth family.
1: Wow. That's pretty cool. My mom asked, What are you working on next?
0: Ah, well, this is my first book that isn't Chinese or Chinese American culture. It takes place on an island off the tip of South Korea. This is uh, Jeju, and it's a macrofocal society. It's not a matriarchy, but the society is focused on women. And for about a thousand years, the women there were free divers, they would go down on a single breath underwater, and stay down for about two minutes and harvest seafood. And so on this island, the women were really the breadwinners and the men stayed home and took care of the kids and did the cooking and cleaning and stuff like that. And so it used to be that there, well, even as recently as the 1970s, there were about 30,000 of them and most of the women would retire at around age 50. Now, the youngest one is probably 55, and the numbers have dropped down. There are around only 4,000 left. And so I was there last year, right at about this time, and I interviewed women in their 70s, 80s, 90s who are still dying. But you know, in another generation, actually, not even a whole generation—something more like 15 years—they say there won't be any left. Of,
1: oh, wow. okay. of your books that you've written in the past, is there one that's really, since it was published, it actually changing your life? Maybe people's reaction or people coming out of the woodwork, or you know, pushing your life in a certain direction.
0: Well, I would actually say that would be my very first book on Gold Mountain, which is about my family, and that's a nonfiction book. And in the introduction, I had one line in there where I said, um, I may not, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, but I may not look Chinese, but I'm Chinese in my heart. And that was my first book tour. And no matter where I went or who interviewed me, and you have to remember this is now 22 years ago, people would say, how could you say that? They didn't think that was a good thing. It it really upset people. At every book event, people would ask, or in interviews, it really um, offended them in some way. Uh, That I would sort of deny the American and this actually kind of set me on a path for everything that's come since, I think, because it really forced me to look inward and think about who I am and how my life is different. And, you know, I don't look like everybody else in my family. I mean, I, and I think that I should have mentioned this earlier, but interviewing these adoptive girls, and I think why I had been thinking about writing them for so long, Mm -hmm. for about, you know, probably maybe since that time uh, from on Gold Mountain, because we have such similar experiences in the sense that I don't look like people in my family either. You know, in Los Angeles, I have about 400 relatives. There are about a dozen that look like me. The majority are full Chinese and then the spectrum in between them. So when I was growing up, I lived with my mom, but I spent a lot of time with my father's side of the family. And when I looked around, what I saw were Chinese faces, what I experienced with Chinese culture, Chinese tradition, Chinese food. All of that, those people, they were my mirror. They were the ones who were telling me who I am. And so when I wrote that one line, I didn't think that much about it, that just to me was my reality. But it really did upset other people. And so this kind of forced me to look deeper inside myself and, and think about, well, who am I? And where do I fit in? And, and what is my identity? And what do I know? And what do I not know? And what should I know? and. I wouldn't say that I'm trying to explain who I am to other people through my books. But what I am trying to do is, through my writing, explain who I am to myself.
1: If you'd like to learn more about Lisa C., check out our website at com. That's L-I-S-A-S-E-E. Dot com. And you can go back to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 86, where she talks to us about Chinese ghosts and the lore around them. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spungcounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spunkcounterguy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticat.com.